Welcome to Together, Sharing This Resurrection Life. This is a podcast with sermon series for our small group discussion. After you have your small group discussion, be sure to check out the show notes and use that link in the show notes to submit your attendance and any questions to me, Pastor Haig, and I'll follow up with you personally. Now, come join this resurrection life together. This particular sermon series is entitled Happily Ever After from Pastor Mike Novotny at The Core in Appleton, Wisconsin. You can check out the show notes for more about The Core. Once upon a time, a happy couple took a long walk for a Valentine's Day date. It was 55 degrees in a Wisconsin winter and they couldn't help but take advantage of the weather. And even from a distance, everyone who saw them could tell that they were deeply and madly in love. They held hands, they flirted, they kissed, they listened, they laughed, they loved each other. They didn't have an easy relationship or an, or an easy year. In fact, she had battled seasonal depression that very winter. And yet her husband loved her right in the middle of it. He reminded her that God delighted in her even when she was disgusted with herself. He had struggles at work, new management and pressing deadlines. And yet she reminded him that God is with us and God's got this and you don't have to be afraid. And they held hands and they walked and they celebrated their connection. After their relationship with God, their relationship with one another was one of the best parts of their life. Which is why they couldn't help but stop as they passed the house on the corner. Because there was a man outside setting up a ladder by the corner of his roof with a sleeping bag underneath his arm. And he started to climb the ladder. And as he did, the couple heard the shrill shouts of his wife in the living room window. They couldn't make out exactly what she was saying, but it wasn't good. And she was not happy with her husband. And so he climbed up on the roof. He unrolled the sleeping bag on the corner of it. And he started to crawl inside, mumbling something about a house out in the desert. She kept screaming and complaining and yelling and nagging and he zipped the sleeping bag up over his head just to drown out the sound of her voice. The couple looked at each other and raised their eyebrows, held hands, and walked home in love. According to the Bible, relationships can be like that or like that. Did you know the story I just told you is not a story that I made up? It's a story in the book of Proverbs. Let me prove it to you. Proverbs, when it speaks about marriage, says a wife of noble character is worth far more than rubies. Her husband praises her. And better to live on a corner of the roof or in a desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. (laughs) The Bible's brutally honest that marriage can be beautiful or marriage can be brutal. Proposing and spending the rest of your days with someone might be the best decision you ever make or it might be the one decision that you most regret. But I'm guessing most of you knew that, right? We've all been to the wedding reception and gotten on our phones and taken a picture of that shuffling 85-year-old couple, 61 years, dominating the newlyweds in the longest dance contest. And we've also gotten a text message from a friend who's in a bitter battle for custody of her kids and a financial settlement in divorce court. Marriage can be the best or marriage can be the worst. Which is why we need a message like tonight. 
a message on dating. If in our culture, marriages aren't arranged like they were in biblical times, if dating is the institution that precedes marriage, then whom we date matters immensely. We have to think very carefully. As one of our divorce members told me when I asked him for for wisdom, to share what he had learned, he said, the best thing I could tell you about divorce is to think carefully when you date. And so that's what I want to do with you tonight, to open a Bible and to try to answer one big question. If you're taking notes in your program, uh, here's the first fill in the blank. The question is, whom should you date? Uh, If you're on the dating scene, how does God want you to answer that question? If you have a good friend in your life group or uh, someone that you came to church with today and they're dating someone, how should you help them answer that question? If you're a parent or a grandparent, an aunt or an uncle, and the kids are are getting way too big, way too fast, you have to start helping them answer that question. Whom should you date? And at first, when we open the Bible, there doesn't seem to be much of an obvious answer. Marriages in the Bible weren't exactly like relationships and marriages today, where Adam and Eve didn't go out to dinner in a movie. God just gave them marriage. Uh, Abraham didn't jump on Tinder to find Sarah just kind of connected because they were in the same place and worshiped the same God. Most of the marriages in biblical times were more about fathers exchanging goats than, uh, than loved ones exchanging phone numbers. And so the Bible doesn't seem to have much to say about this topic. There's no chapter on love languages and financial habits and discipline methods for kids and how he loads the dishwasher, the things that we tend to fight about today, Right. And so we're tempted to close the book and say, well, we have to learn dating from culture and from family and friends, but not from God. But that's not true. Because the Bible has a lot to say. It has chapters and chapters to say about faith. About people who have faith and people who don't. About people who say they have faith and they practice their faith. And about people who say they have faith and you can't really tell that they do it all. Which for me is really helpful because I know a lot of us have dated or are dating with a difference in faith. Maybe you brought your date here today to church. Welcome. It's a perfect week to be here, huh? I'm not sure what the church date is these days. Is that like date number seven or number two? Whenever you come and you just, you have so much in common and you're falling in love with each other. You're thinking about the future, but you realize we weren't raised the same way. We don't have the same spiritual background. We're just on different pages when it comes to God. What does God say about that? Or maybe your son is falling in love for the first time and he believes in Jesus, but his new girlfriend doesn't. What does God say about that? Or maybe your sister or someone in your life group is getting really serious about a guy, but the guy isn't yet really serious about God. What does God say about that? When when there's a difference in the depth of our heart, the, the one that we pursue more than anything else, what do the scriptures say about that? Can you date that person? Are you allowed to marry them? Would God show up and bless that relationship, that union? And if you would open your Bible from the first page and start reading, you would quickly find that the answer is obvious. The answer is no. In the Old Testament, God was crystal clear that he did not want his chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, to date people who didn't worship the same God. There's passage after passage after passage that forbids their marriages between God's people, the Israelites, and the people of other nations. 
Because God knew and the Old Testament history proved it that most of the mess of idolatry started with two people falling in love. It's King Solomon who worshiped God. He wrote that lesson that we read earlier today and he, he dates and he marries many, many women who worship many, many gods and before you know it, what happens? His heart is led astray. In fact, the nation of Israel fell apart. Their worship was empty and idolatrous because they fell in love and they chose their first love instead of the first commandment to have no other gods. In fact, there's this fascinating book uh, in the Old Testament, the book of Ezra. I'm not sure if you've read it. Uh, The last chapter isn't this wonderful, happy, and they were with God and lived happily ever after. The book of Ezra actually ends with 112 names. The names of the men who were guilty, again, of marrying women from other nations. Even though Israel had been led astray by people from other nations, And even though God had sent them into exile, when they came back and started to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, what did they do again? They worshiped other gods again because they were dating outside of their faith again. And Ezra ends with this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy, 112 guys, end of the book. So it seems like an obvious answer to our question, doesn't it? And if you brought your date to church today and they're not a church person, this just got really awkward, didn't it? (laughs) Uh, Sorry. Uh, Give him a kiss, kiss him goodbye, like forever, and we'll get back to church, right? (laughs) Um, Actually, no. Um, I'm being facetious about that, but but, but not yet. Because if you've read the Bible, you might realize that there's there's a bunch of stuff in the first half of the book that we don't exactly do today. Like, God forbid in the Old Testament, the interfaith relationships. But he also said that when you come to church, you have to bring an animal with you that will sacrifice and spatter its blood on the altar of God. Anyone bring a goat with them today? No. And he also commanded that you had to worship on the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath day, which is Saturday. And if my watch is correct, it's not and, and we're not. There's all sorts of things that God said in the Old Testament that he doesn't command for his New Testament people today, people like us. There's some commandments that were just for his Old Testament Israelites and not for modern day Christians. And so the question is, when we look at the New Testament, does God repeat what he says in the Old? That's where we really find out what's applicable to us today. And so as we try to answer this question, we have to say, what does the New Testament say about interfaith dating? And there's a lot of Christians, I would guess, if you would just Google that question, can a Christian date a non-Christian, that would give you an immediate answer, and the answer would be, no, you can't. And they would quote two passages to you, 2 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians 7. I want to look really carefully at both those passages with you tonight. Here's the first one. 2 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and he says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. You know what a yoke is? Two two animals are out in the field. Uh, The farmer puts a yoke around them so they plow in the same direction. And and Paul's saying, I don't want you to be yoked. I don't want you to be joined together with people who aren't plowing. They're not moving in the same spiritual direction. And so some people will say, don't be unequally yoked. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Don't be yoked together in marriage, the closest of all human relationships with someone who doesn't worship the same God which seems like a really compelling case, except for one tiny little detail. There's a word that's not mentioned in this passage, and it's the word 
marriage. The passage actually isn't about marriage at all. If you'd read the whole chapter, 2 Corinthians 6, you would never find dating, relationships, marriage even mentioned. What you would find is idolatry. Paul's not talking about whom you should date. He's talking about whom you should worship with. And so if a Hindu and a Jewish rabbi and a Muslim imam came up on stage and I grabbed hands with them and started to pray, Paul would say, no, no, no. Don't be yoked together with people who don't share your same faith. If you're not all moving spiritually in the direction of the cross and worshiping Jesus Christ, you, you shouldn't join hands with a Hindu and you shouldn't bow down with a Buddhist. You're on different pages spiritually. You know how you don't like to be taken out of context? Uh, Paul doesn't either. And so being unequally yoked has to do with worship. It doesn't have to do with weddings. Which means we haven't answered our question yet. Now, the second passage helps much more. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, the Apostle Paul definitely is talking about relationships. In fact, we're going to study that chapter in multiple weeks of this sermon series. He's talking about being single, being married, being divorced, being widowed. And way at the end of the chapter, Paul drops a line that is famous in Christian circles when it comes to dating. Here's what he says in verse 39. He says, but if her, it's the Christian woman, if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. He must belong to the Lord. And that's an answer to our question, isn't it? Not he should, or it would be really nice if he did, but he must belong to the Lord. Case closed. Well, I hate to do this to you, but that's not actually what the passage says. You know, the New Testament wasn't written in English originally. It was written in Greek. Um, In Greek, do you know what the last line literally says? She's free to marry anyone she wishes, but in the Lord. And because that's kind of vague, the people who translated this version of the Bible added in the he must belong, but it's, it's not actually there. Paul isn't saying that the guy must be in the Lord, but when she chooses to marry, that has to happen in the Lord. In other words, when she's thinking about this guy, she also has to think about God. She can't be so head over heels for him that she forgets about holiness and worshiping God with her whole life. As she thinks about their future, she has to remember that God is her real future. God is the greatest passion of her heart. If she forgets about all that, then she's not marrying in the Lord. But if she remembers, if she thinks, if she prays and considers, then she is marrying, according to 1 Corinthians 7, in the Lord. So I'd propose to you that the teaching of the New Testament is not so much about whom you can marry, but how you should marry. It's our big idea for today if you're taking notes. The, the question of dating is not so much a whom. God says you, you can date him, but you can't date him. The question is a how. The follower of Jesus, how will you date him? Or how will you date her? God isn't looking at a certain percentage of the population and saying to his people, you can't. He's just asking an honest question. Can you? Can you still love me with all of your heart? if you fall in love with someone who doesn't love me with all their heart? That's a question every Christian should ask in every relationship. Is this happening in the Lord? Now, let me try to demonstrate for you what I mean. Um, 
John and Carolyn, can I steal you guys for a second? Would you mind coming up here? Let's imagine for a second. I should have told you I was going to do this beforehand. It would have been helpful, wouldn't it? Um, in your bulletin, you see three blanks as I described three kinds of couples. I want to try to visualize what that looks like for you. Let's just imagine for a second. Uh, Carolyn, would you stand right here? Uh, let's imagine Carolyn is a Christian and her whole life is in pursuit of the cross. She wants to seek God. Like we sang in our last song, my, my greatest desire is to know you, Lord. She's moving in that direction. Then she meets, ah, John. John, does that happen when you walk into the room? Yeah. John catches her eye. They have so much in common. They, they feel this connection and he's getting closer and closer and they're thinking about joining hands and becoming one flesh in marriage. Why don't you hold hands with this wonderful woman? Now, there's three things that can happen. Um, if she's moving in that direction, let's imagine that John's moving away from God. He's, he's not religious. In fact, he's against it. He doesn't think we should teach children about Jesus. It's like brainwashing. And so she's trying to walk towards the cross and he's walking away from it, but they're still trying to hold hands. See what happens? There's like this, this tension and after a while it gets tiring and exhausting. Right? That's option number one. Let's try option number two. Let's say John isn't running away from God. Let's say he's kind of apathetic. Um, he's not really into Jesus. He's not going to stop her from going to church. You can read the Bible. You can teach the kids whatever you want, but he's not going to go with her. Now, they hold hands in marriage. See what happens this time. Same spot, right? Ever heard of a relationship where a girl had to drag a guy to church? Yeah, that's what, that's what this is. Um, now, let's imagine option number three. They meet and they join hands as one flesh in marriage, except this time they're both moving in the same direction. You see what happens? Not only are they both getting closer to Jesus, but, but there's less tension. There's more agreement. There's more intimacy. There's more closeness. Their mutual pursuit of God in the Lord is bringing them closer together as a couple. And so when Paul says, I want, I want you to date and I want you to marry in the Lord, he's essentially saying, I want you to remember this. Whatever choice you make, whatever person you want to pursue, you have to think about where they're at spiritually. You have to think about what that's going to mean, the implications. Do you want a life like that? Could you have a happily ever after with option one or option two or option three? Thanks, John and Caroline. Let's give them a round of applause. Thank you for their help. So let me apply this in the second half of this message to three groups of people. Uh, first of all, let's talk about those of us who know someone who's dating. Our kids, our grandkids, our, our friends, uh, fellow people here at church. Then number two, let's talk about Christians who've already made that commitment and they are married even though they didn't think about dating in the Lord. And finally, let's talk about those of you who aren't Christians or passionate about church just yet. Right. Right, first of all, for, for the community of faith. Uh, just a show of hands today, how, how many of you know someone who's in love? Like they're, they're dating someone, they're in a relationship, yeah, lots of us. Um, keep your hands up if, in your opinion, that person is thinking really clearly and logically about life. <laughs> yeah. You ever, <laughs> you ever met someone who's kind of head over heels? They call it the infatuation stage one of love. Um, this happens all the time to me. I probably shouldn't say this out loud, but in premarital counseling, I would say like, hey, on a scale of zero to 100, like how love do you feel? And what would you change about your fiance if you could? <laughs> and I always have these couples that they sit on the couch in my office and they say, he's a hundred. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything about him. <laughs> and I'm just thinking like, no, 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 no. Like, come back, come back in two years and we'll actually have some real counseling. I mean, Jesus wants to change a whole thing, a bunch of things about this guy, but apparently you don't. You don't, you don't see it. There's this fog of love and it's not a bad thing, but our brains don't work well. There's so much dopamine being released when we fall in love with someone. And that's why we need other people. 
And it's one of the hardest things to do, isn't it? When you're in love and you think you're different and you're relentlessly optimistic, he's, he's going to change. He says he'll let me go to church. What we need, what we need, what we need is people who love us and people who love God who are strong enough to ask us, is this in the Lord? Have you thought about what the next 50 years are going to mean if he doesn't change? If she doesn't adjust spiritually? And so we need to have the courage to ask those questions to our children and our grandchildren. We want to be legalistic. We don't want to say you can't. We just have to ask the question, can you? Can you seek God with all your heart if you marry this person? And listen, if you're dating, you have to promise me that you'll listen. Instead of running away from the hard questions, instead of saying, you don't understand, they're actually the people who might understand better than you do. And so listen to your children even, if you're on the dating scene later in life. Listen to the people in your life group. Don't run away and say they're toxic for your relationship. Instead, listen to their wisdom. Soak it in so that you can truly marry in the Lord. All right, now category number two. I know as I thought about this sermon, for some of you, this would be really, really hard to hear because you didn't think about 1 Corinthians 7 before you said, I do. Now you're married to someone and you feel that tension and you don't know how to change it. She hasn't come around and he's not coming to church and it's really hard bringing the kids Sunday after Sunday. You're, you're married, there's a ring on your finger, but you're spiritually single when you worship. Now, if that's you, I just want you to say, we're so glad that you're part of our church and you need to know that God has a great plan for you in your relationship. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul actually addresses this very issue. He, he says this in the start of the chapter, the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Like, sanctified means to make someone holy. And he's saying sometimes, a lot of times, it's through a relationship that an unbeliever becomes a believer. Someone who wasn't really going to church and now they start going. In fact, when I look out at all of you, when I think about the marriages that have happened, the people in our Bible 101 class, we have so many people who first came to know and love God because they fell in love with someone who knew and loved God. And so the New Testament says you, you shouldn't divorce to look for someone who's going to hold hands and walk towards the cross. Instead, you should love and you should let your light shine. You should show your husband or your wife how amazing it is to know God. That it's not just something on the calendar. It's not just an hour we spend, hour 15, on a Sunday night. Instead, <laughs> instead, God is everything to us. We're not afraid of the future because we know God and he's God and he's with us. We don't have to live with shame and guilt and fear. He's God and he loves us and he's never going to leave us or forsake us. How powerful would it be if while your unbelieving husband is panicking about the finances, you're perfectly at peace. If he's dragging around the baggage from his past, you're leaving it at the foot of the cross. If he's living with the drama of not being able to forgive his coworkers and yet you're living in reconciliation and forgiveness, what a bright light that would be that would draw him, draw her to God. In fact, if you're in that situation, you get to do what Jesus did for us. Think about it. The Bible says that Christians are like the bride of Christ, the one he pursued and, and purchased and proposed to with his own blood. When Jesus came down from heaven and he came into this world, do you know the kind of people he, he, he sought after? 
If Jesus went on match.com, a spiritual version, do you know the kind of people he was looking for? <laughs> Messed up people. People far, people running away from God. Straying sheep and lost lambs and prodigal sons. And he pursued us. When we were sinful, when we were broken, when we didn't deserve to be in a relationship with God, he came after us and he would not stop, even if it cost him his very life. And if you're a Christian here today, that's what changed us, isn't it? I mean, that's why we love the commandments of God because he pursued us in our brokenness and loved us in our sin. And some of you are going to leave here today and you're going to go home to a person who is just like you used to be, lost spiritually. And you get to love them just like Jesus loves you. So don't despair. First Peter 3 says, Wives, if any of you have husbands who don't believe, win them over without words when they see the purity and reverence of your life. Which leaves us with our last category. What about people who are dating who don't believe just yet? If you're one of our guests here today and you're not a member of our church family, this has the potential to be the most awkward sermon you've ever heard. <laughs> like the pastor is talking about me that I might be dangerous to the woman that I love. This is a great church to be at. Um, here's what I want you to know. We're so happy that you're here. And we, we pray for people like you to be here. We are so honored that your date decided to take you on a date to a church like ours. Because if there's one thing we want to give you is not just another cute, poor girl. What we want to give you is God. We want you to know that there is something better, something more exciting than you can ever imagine in the presence of God. In fact, we have a bunch of people who are going to come to our Bible 101 class after tonight's service because of our relationship to learn more about God. We'd love it if you came too. In fact, in just a few minutes when we gather our offering on this communication card, there's a little box that says, I want to learn more about Jesus. And maybe that's why God brought you here. That even if your relationship doesn't make it, you would have a relationship that would last forever, a connection to a God of power and a God of grace. But you know, even if you don't check this box, um, there's something really important that I want you to know. If you're here tonight with a girl who loves God, here's something you might not have known. She loves God. I mean, loves God. She loves what God loves. She wants what God wants. She desires to do what God desires her to do. She's not perfect. You probably know that already. But when she sins, she repents. She feels bad about it. She wants to do it differently tomorrow. That, that's her heart. That's the goal of her whole life, to glorify God every day. And I want you to know that if that's not where you are in your life, there's going to be this tension. If in every decision you're asking yourself, what do I think? And she's grabbing this book and asking, what does God think? There's going to be tension. And before you take another step, I want you to be aware of the tension. Like she's going to get a raise, a promotion, a bonus, an inheritance. And you know the first thing she's going to want to do? Give. Give back to God. Give extravagant amounts of money to support the spread of the gospel. And I have a feeling that might not be your first reaction. You're going to, want to pay off the school loans or pay off the visa card or put an extra payment on the house and there's going to be tension, financial tension. Or maybe in a few years, 
your son's going to have his first weekend tournament. And your wife's going to say to the coach, I'm, I'm sorry, our son can't make it. We have church. And you're going to say, well, well like every Sunday? <laughs> it's not a bit much. I mean, we can skip one or two or it's the summer. He's young. He's really good at his sport. And there's going to be tension with the kids. Or maybe you're dating and, and she's going to talk to you after church today and she's going to say, you know, we can't, we can't do what we've been doing. We can't keep living together. We're, we're not married. We can't keep sleeping together. We're, we're not married. And those words, and I get it, they're going to sound crazy to you. We, we love each other. Why, why wouldn't we express love in a physical way? We're thinking about marriage. Why wouldn't we see if we're compatible by, by living under the same roof? And there's going to be incredible tension and it's going to happen with everything. With your schedules, with your finances, with your kids, with discipline, with, with work, with everything, you're going to be asking different questions and you're going to come up with different answers. And I want you to know about that tension. Because there are only two things that can fix the tension. Either you pursue God or she stops. Either God changes your heart and, and you walk with her. Or she stops feeling guilty about sin and turns her back on God. Do you know what would be infinitely better? If, if two people, no matter what they know about God, no matter how they were raised, if they've been to church a thousand times or tonight's the first time, if they would just consider what God could do at the center of it. I got married on, on June 15th, 2003. And as I stood before the altar, my, my pastor said, Mike, picture a triangle and here's God and here's you and here's Kim. If both of you will seek God, if both of you will want to know God, do you know what happens to the distance between you? It gets smaller. <laughs> you get closer. When you open this book and you find out that God loves you when you're a mess, sometimes you go home to a woman who's a mess and you know what to do. When you look at the cross of Jesus Christ and you realize when we deserve nothing, he gave us everything. You go home to a husband who deserves nothing and you know what you give him? Everything. You find yourself being married to someone who maybe doesn't deserve all of your affection and yet you look up to heaven and you see a God who delights in you despite all your imperfections. When God is at the center of it, when two people pursue, they know how to forgive and love until death do them part. And so I want to ask you all today, what if he did that? What if he gave it a chance? What if he checked the box? What if you had a conversation? What if you pursued God together with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Uh, the other day, I, I snuck into my, my little daughter's bedroom uh, and I sat on the carpet right next to her bed and I watched her sleep these two little pigtails springing from her head out of her pink pillowcase. She's lying in a sea of like 47 different stuffed animals and uh, I start to pray for her. Uh, I pray and I pray because I know, I mean, I, I know it's coming. She's got a big girl bed, she's got big girl teeth and before daddy knows it, she's going to have big girl desires. And I know what I want to do. I want to buy a shotgun. 
or a shotgun store. I want to I get one of those big German Bibles with a leather cover and a rocking chair when the kid comes to the front door and I say, do you know what they could kill people for in the Old Testament? I just want to read the passages to that little punk. <sighs> but I know I can't. I can't do that. <laughs> Ever heard pastor's daughters have a kind of reputation, right? It's too legalistic at home, and so they go wild. Um, so instead, I said I pray. And I don't just pray for my little Maya. I, I pray for the boy. The boy I probably haven't met yet. And I pray that he would know God. <laughs> I pray that he would know what commitment is. Because he's seen it already in God. I pray that he would know what, what it's like to love a woman who doesn't deserve it. Because he know how deeply he's been loved and he didn't deserve it. And I pray for that boy's parents. I haven't met them yet either, but I pray that that man, his dad is a man of God. A man who turns his home into a sanctuary. A man who loves his wife as Christ loved the church. A man who kisses his bride and dates her until he dies. So that becomes normal until the day that he sees my little Maya for the first time. And I pray. And when I say amen, I walk out of her room and I don't grab a ladder and a sleeping bag. I go to hold the hand of the woman who's led me closer to God. And so no, I I won't tell my my daughters who they have to date. And God's not going to say the same to you. But God does know this, our, our last passage. How good And how pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. May that be true for every family, every couple. In Jesus' name. Let's pray. Oh God, you you pursue us despite all of our flaws. You expose us and yet you you never leave us naked and ashamed. You cover us in your grace and your love. And that's what I pray for today, God, that you would open our eyes to be wise and that you would help us to be blown away and amazed that you pursue us. God, you are reaching out to every person who is here today and, and one of the ways that you're reaching is through the person that they met and the person that they're falling in love with. I pray that you would leverage that relationship for your glory and for their good. Father, give us wisdom as a church. We've experienced beautiful marriages and we've walked together with one another through the bitterness of divorce. And so we need each other to heal, to help, to not repeat the mistakes of the past. Bless us that there would be joy, love, and commitment for better or worse until death do us join with you in heaven. God, we pray all these things believing that prayers of your people are righteous and effective, that if we ask you will answer because we come to you today in the name of the one who pursued us first, Jesus Christ. In his name we ask it. Amen.